Lord Sumption, Jonathan Sumption, brilliant to have you with me on 20 Questions With. First question is this, you're going to be 75 in December. Looking back thus far, and your career is still very much in full swing, but looking back, what are you actually most proud of? What has given you the greatest pride in, in the sense of your contribution to the public or private sphere? Well, I've got two spheres, and I can't give you a single answer that applies to both. I think that my contribution to the work of the Supreme Court during the seven years um, which I, when I sat on it is something that I will always be proud of, even though I didn't always persuade my colleagues to agree with me. Um, I quite often did, however, and sometimes the people I persuaded to agree with me were those that I most expected to take the other line. So that's one thing I'm proud of. In the other half of my existence, I'm proud of having finished after 43 years a five-volume history of 120 years of European history. The Hundred Years' War was a, a massively important period of history. And I wonder, for those who are not familiar with it, what you think we can learn from the study of it? I think that the war was the origin of the state in both England and France. Of course, there had been a state before, but wars are won at least as much by bureaucrats as they are by soldiers. And the origin of the bureaucratic state, with the enormous organization needed to recruit armies and fleets, uh, uh, to uh, finance wars and so on, is a fascinating process. And the war strained both English and French societies. And the, as a result, the process greatly accelerated during that period. Do you think that being multidisciplinary in your work has helped you in both spheres? Do you think that being an academic, being a historian, has helped you in your legal career? And do you think that being a lawyer has helped your history? Yes, I think that both of those things are true. It's very easy to get stale when you do the same thing for 50 years, as after all, most of us do in one way or another. And one way to avoid getting stale is to have a hinterland, to have some other interest to which you can turn. And there's also a curious interaction between the two halves. English law, a common law customary system, is a, uh, a very historical thing. And likewise, I find, and other people notice this more often than I do, that I tend to use turns of phrase and interest myself in eccentric bits of the lives of the people who I describe in my history, which brand me as a lawyer. Though, oddly enough, my American publishers tell me that you should never admit to being a lawyer if you're writing a book on history, because the American public just don't believe you can do two things well, whereas the British do. You skipped being a high court judge. You skipped being a court of appeal judge. You went straight to the Supreme Court, which, as I understand it, has been unique. It's happened five times, I think, since uh, 1873, when the current court system was set up. But it hasn't happened for a while before you. That's true. I want to ask you about the different pressures that you experienced as a barrister, as a QC, as you were then these days, it's a Casey. The different pressures you experienced as a QC on your feet, putting the best possible argument forward in the most robust possible way, however you chose to do that. And then the pressures of being a judge. And part of your answer might include the fact that you didn't have to sit as a solo judge. You didn't have to sit as a high court judge might 
on his or her own. Well, I, I did sit as a, a recorder of the Crown Court's to part-time appointment for some 12 years. So you had some ex- you had some experience then of that. D- discuss with me or d- describe to me the differing pressures of being an advocate and being a judge. Well, they're not as different as you might think. I mean, obviously, uh, the advocate starts from the answer and works backwards. He has to work out what his desired destination is and then decide what uh, honest and persuasive arguments he can muster to get there. And you might think that that leads to a completely different approach to a judge who's supposed to start from first principles and work his way to the answer, precisely the opposite process, in other words. But actually, they're not so different, because when you try to work out how to persuade an independent-minded judge, the first thing you have to do is to get some idea of what you would expect to be a judge's instinctive reaction to the various arguments that you might deploy. Advocates who don't do that um, uh, tend to do rather badly. So uh, actually, you are replicating or trying to replicate the thought processes of a judge in your advocacy. When you become a judge, you do exactly the same thing, but you take a shortcut. The the brevity of that second part of your answer reminds me of a question I asked you in the very first interview I did with you for the BBC. And the answer I think you gave was that the law, perhaps by and large, is common sense with knobs on. Do you stick by that? Absolutely, I do. And you start with an instinctive view of what the answer ought to be. You test it against the factual, moral and intellectual factors that are relevant. And if your hypothesis fails the test and you're an honest judge, you change your mind. What sort of a barrister were you? Were you about the preparation? Was it about the brain, the intellect? I mean, you were known as the biggest brain in Britain. Was it a... (laughs) was it about the way you performed was it a performance thing for you how did you go about it and how important was the being on your feet part of it the actual advocacy well it's a mixture of all of those things the actual advocacy is where the magic is and that's where the the fun is obviously uh, you have to have a, a good intellect but that isn't enough and the bar is full of really clever, able people who haven't got anywhere, either because they lack the other qualities or because they just didn't have much luck. But obviously, the key thing is when you're on your feet to hold the interest of the judge. And there are all sorts of considerations that are important. One of them, I've always felt, uh, though this may sound intolerably superficial, is you should talk in an interesting way. It should never be possible when you are halfway through a sentence to know exactly how that sentence is going to end. Uh, That way, they listen more carefully. So, you know, I believe in speaking in complete sentences, in a logically coherent scheme. And I also believe, or believed when I was an advocate, in basically trying to work with the judge in the sense of trying to work out what his instinctive feelings are going to be and and to work with those. But ultimately, Advocacy is never, or very rarely, decisive. Really rotten advocacy can lose cases. Good advocacy will not win them on their own. The merits of the case itself are the thing that has the decisive effect. Did you find being a judge easy? Uh, No, but I did find that it was less stressful. But that is partly because of the unique atmosphere of the Supreme Court. The throughput 
of a first instance judge and the Court of Appeal is pretty terrifying. By comparison, the Supreme Court takes or took, when I was sitting on it, something like 80 cases a year. And you really do have the time to think seriously, to discuss the implications with your colleagues, uh, to change your mind, or certainly to change your emphasis in some cases. Now, that's a huge luxury, and you couldn't want anything better than that. So in that sense, certainly being in the Supreme Court is less stressful than being a barrister. But that doesn't mean to say it's easy. And the responsibility of deciding cases, almost all of which admit at least of at least two plausible answers, and getting it right uh, for every level of the court hierarchy uh, for what may be a very long time, uh, is fairly daunting. The senior or superior court to the Court of Appeal used to be the House of Lords, used to be known as the House of Lords. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court is a relatively recent incarnation. Do you think it's been a success? Yes, I do. But one reason why it's been a success is that it's actually exactly the same as the old appellate committee of the House of Lords. The procedure is the same. The powers are the same. The sort of people who sit on it are the same. Uh, Those are obviously a, a bit less flummery. Um, But there really is no difference. I cannot think of a single case decided in the Supreme Court since it started business in 2009, which would not have been decided in the same way by the same sort of people in the House of Lords. The main difference is that uh, the budget for the Supreme Court in its own building and with its own staff is at least three times greater than it was in the House of Lords. What sort of shape do you think that the judicial system in England and Wales is in at the moment? Well, I think it's in rather good shape. I used to be less optimistic about it. Uh, I spent six years before going to the Supreme Court uh, as a member of the Judicial Appointments Commission. And at that time, this was between 2006 and 2011, there was real concern about the fact that the most promising candidates for judicial office were not applying. There were a variety of reasons for that, concerned with Uh, pensions and so on. But the biggest reason was that, you know, when you're at the top of your game as an advocate, people don't want to go down to the bottom of the next ladder and start as a first instance judge doing the sort of cases that they wouldn't have touched with a barge pole for the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, That was a source of real concern. And that fear has has gone. Uh, Really good people are applying to become judges and they are getting appointed. So, you know, I, I am pretty optimistic that the very high intellectual uh, quality of British judges uh, will continue, at least for the foreseeable future. Have you got a sense of the impact of political decisions? Let's take austerity as an important example, perhaps. Have you got a sense of how politics has impacted on our legal system more broadly? And what sort of shape do you think that's in? Because there are those who think it's in in a very bad way. Well, the people who think that tend to do so because they are concerned that some of the uh, cases were decided on political grounds. Uh, I think they they normally have in mind the two Miller decisions about Brexit. Uh, I think that this is nonsense. Uh, The first Miller decision was decided by a majority of seven to four. The second one was unanimous. I'm not going to name names, but I can tell you uh, that the uh, um, the, the lineup in each case bore no relation 
to the views of particular individual judges about the merits or lack of them of Brexit. Um, it was a pure legal process. And I think that the public largely recognized that. You may remember the appalling headline, uh, Enemies of the People, which followed the divisional court's judgment. There were no similar headlines after the Supreme Court's judgment. And I think one reason for that was that the whole proceedings were televised. And, you know, people who were expecting rousing uh, patriotic declarations or denunciations when they switched on their screens, instead found themselves wading through uh, rather uninteresting cases about crown leases in 1916 and so on. And uh, that persuaded a lot of people that it was a good deal less political than they had initially assumed. The process was dignified, it was serious, it was non-political, non it was argued by very senior and responsible advocates. I think that persuaded a lot of people. Of course, some people are completely unpersuadable, but there's nothing we can do about that. You've given a very interesting answer to a question that perhaps I didn't feel I was asking. The question I'm interested in, I'm interested in the answer you've just given also, is legal aid, for example, right. and the way that our legal system is funded, backlogs, and so forth. I, I'm looking at it in the rounds as a whole. I'm, I'm not thinking simply of the judiciary. Do you share concerns that our legal system is struggling? You're talking, in other words, about access to justice, rather than the quality of justice administered when you get there. Exactly. Okay. I, I, the running of justice, the way, the way that it works, the way the way that the, the system actually works in, in, in practice. And, and yes, very definitely not talking about the administration of justice through, through the decision-making of judges. Right. Well, legal aid used to be uh, on a demand-led basis, and perhaps the golden age of the legal aid system was the um, 1970s and early 1980s. The problem is, and lawyers sometimes find it hard to accept this, that there's never enough money to meet all the demands on government. And uh, you can't simply look at the court budget and the legal aid budget in isolation. Every penny that is spent on legal aid is potentially not spent on the NHS or on defence or on education. And I think that lawyers have got to get used to the idea that they are competing for funds against a number of public goods, some of which are entitled to a high level of priority. Obviously, I regret the fact that the legal aid budget has become much more constrained and that that has produced injustices. But I find it very hard to criticize this fact for the reason that I've just given. Uh, backlogs, they mainly affect the criminal justice system. And to some extent, this is part of the aftermath of the COVID lockdowns. There are also serious problems about uh, the lack of expenditure on court buildings, which is reducing the court capacity. Um, uh, there has been a tendency, I'm afraid, for governments, uh, particularly under when Chris Grayling was Secretary of State, to take short-term methods of cutting the budget uh, without thinking seriously or without caring seriously about what the long-term consequences would be. This is an endemic vice of all governments, and it has hit the justice system hard. So you know, access to justice has suffered. I think that there are very, very little that we can do about that. We could certainly endeavour to make litigation cheaper. Um, that would involve cutting corners, which would, I think, reduce the quality of justice. But we may have to put up with that. It may be 
that uh, a less Rolls-Royce system would be more satisfactory if it enabled more people to get access to the system and their cases to be heard quicker. Chris Grayling, I should say, isn't here to give his side of the argument. What I want to ask you is this. There is a convention, isn't there? And you're aware of it, of course, that former judges aren't, as it were, supposed to talk about political issues. Mm -hmm. You spoke out, I was going to say loudly, but prominently during the COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you square that convention with what you chose to do. Well, I can't square it. Uh, the uh, The convention is a fairly loose one, but it does exist, and you've correctly summarised it. I uh, have, with the exception of COVID, have tended to concentrate my public statements on, sta- on the Constitution and to some extent on free speech, but that's a- another issue. In the last few years, talking about the Constitution has necessarily involved some reflections on the unusual state of our politics um, over the last, uh, in the recent in recent years. That I think was unavoidable, but I think it's an entirely legitimate position for a judge to take to talk about constitutional issues on which he will have experience and expertise and an ability to explain the background to prominent cases, which I think is valuable to the public. Now, I entirely accept uh, that COVID uh, is not the sort of issue, lockdowns are not the sort of issue, uh, which one would have expected, given the convention, former judges uh, to express strong views about. I have to say that all conventions have to yield occasionally to other considerations. Uh, I felt that the lockdown raised questions about relations between the state and the citizen, which were fundamental which were likely to affect our politics and our freedoms for a long time to come. And there are always going to be some issues on which you have to stand up and be counted. This was one of them. There's a COVID inquiry ongoing. Do you think you were right about lockdowns looking back? I've stopped writing about lockdowns for the last quite a few months. It seems to me that the public are fed up of the subject and and glad to be out of the lockdowns, whatever they think about the wisdom of the lockdowns in the first place. Uh, I'm certainly not excluding the possibility uh, that I will want to comment on what the the, the inquiry comes up with. You haven't answered my question. You don't have to answer my question, of course, but I'm I'm interested. I thought I had, but obviously I misunderstood it. No, just whether you think that you did get it right on lockdowns. Oh, I think I did. Uh, and and I think that the more evidence you get about the chaotic uh, decision-making processes, the more evidence that you get about the really serious long-term effects, for example, on mental health at all ages and on children, uh, in education in particular, uh, all tends to reinforce the view that I took with much less information at, at the time. I think that the view that I took remains a majority, a minority opinion among the public at large, uh, and I do not know what the inquiry will come up with. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that subsequent events have very much vindicated the stand. In particular, it has shown that suggestions that Sweden was simply stoking up trouble for itself by taking exactly the same kind of policy line that I think the British government should have taken. Uh, have been shown to be very wide of the mark uh, without any very significant difference between the Swedish and the British population. Uh, Sweden managed to do better than we did, uh, roughly at the middle of the range of European countries' results, 
uh, while adopting a much more civilized approach to basic freedoms. Are there circumstances in which you would back a lockdown? Are there circumstances in which individual freedom, in your view, should be subjugated to, shall we say, the greater good? Or of course, of course. Uh, I'm if a libertarian means somebody who believes that liberty trumps everything, then I am not one. And I can I can imagine a, a pandemic so serious that it would be justifiable to lock people down. Uh, but this pandemic. Uh, does not come into that category, principally because uh, although everybody was equally vulnerable to get inf getting infected, the classes that were vulnerable to getting seriously ill or, or dying were generally uh, identifiable in advance. They were basically people, uh, older people, generally over the retirement age, and people with a number of identifiable, mainly respiratory underlying health conditions we could have used that to ensure that the people who needed to be isolated were isolated uh, and those who did not uh, were able to get on with their lives, with their work. We would have suffered much less as a nation economically and financially if we'd done that uh, and it would have made very little difference in my view uh, to the ultimate death toll. Did what you see as the unjustifiable impositions of the state on the individual during the, the pandemic. Did that, in your view, justify law-breaking? Did it meet that threshold? Given that you have spent the great majority of your professional life in law, I'm very curious as to your answer, because you might you might argue, for example, that in apartheid South Africa, law-breaking was justified. Was law-breaking, in your view, justified during the pandemic? I think that it's impossible to answer that question in general terms, but it will be obvious that uh, every individual will have his own threshold above which he feels that the moral objections to the law are such that it is right to, to break it. Everybody will have their threshold in, in a different place. It depends on the issue, it depends on their own personality and so on. But there certainly are times when the most public-spirited thing that you can do about certain laws is to ignore them. Did you lose friends over your views on lockdowns? And if so, have you regained those friendships? I didn't lose any friends, uh, even among those who disagreed strongly with what I was saying. Now, since we began to set up this interview, you have written in The Spectator about the European Court of Human Rights, the ECHR. Yes. And before I ask you about the substance of that, that might be described as wading into, again, a political issue. Can you square that with the convention? Or do you view the ECHR and questions as to whether we should remain under its jurisdiction or not as constitutional questions, which you therefore give yourself, as it were, an exemption from this convention? I don't give myself an exemption from it. I think it is an exception. It is a constitutional issue. Many constitutional issues, especially over the last few years, have political implications. That should not deter lawyers from giving the public the advantage of their knowledge and experience of the issue. So I'm totally unrepentant about that. I have, in fact, been criticising the ECHR for quite a number of years. My position on that is, is well known. The, the only difference recently is that, having hoped for many years that uh, internal reform might either solve or at any rate improve the way in which the Strasbourg court works. 
I no longer think that that is possible. So I've changed my mind on whether we should withdraw. But my objection is not to the convention itself, which I think is a perfectly admirable statement of rights, which with some exceptions have been acknowledged by British politicians and common lawyers for many, many years. The problem really is that the Strasbourg court has devised doctrines which authorize it in its own view, to depart from the text, although the text is the only thing that the state parties to the convention have actually agreed. And the result is that they have become a kind of superior legislator for the 46 countries of the Council of Europe. Uh, I find that very difficult to square with basic democratic decision-making. If we're talking about really fundamental rights, the kind of things about which people tend to be agreed, then it seems to me that that kind of approach would be justified. But most of the decisions of the Strasbourg court are not about truly fundamental things. They are about micromanaging the legal systems of these uh, 46 countries. One might say that calls to leave the ECHR are an extension of one of the reasons that some people voted for Brexit. In other words, about sovereignty and national democracy. And you could see that if you voted for, if one voted for Brexit on those grounds, that you might say it's a logical next step to leave the ECHR as well. There is a problem, though, isn't there? A, a, a fundamental problem, and that is this: that it is a, it represents, it is a safeguard. Perhaps it exists as a safeguard against scenarios in which I think you and I would agree that a sovereign nation or a democracy has failed. And I'll give you a very simple example. Let's say our country, Britain, turned against the Jews and that this was done by a democratically elected government. Perhaps even, this is obviously fanciful, thank goodness, but by it, perhaps it was even in the manifesto of a democratically elected government that Jews should have their rights taken away from them. In that situation, does not the ECHR represent a critical safeguard? No, I don't believe it does, because experience suggests that if autocrats with oppressive policies acquire a majority, Germany is a very obvious example in the 1930s, uh, they can ride roughshod over the courts and there's nothing that you can do to stop them. What does stop them is a political culture which is opposed to such things. Now, you described the idea of a British party coming to power with a policy of persecuting the Jews as being fanciful. I agree that it's fanciful. And I also agree that the view that one takes about something like the ECHR must depend to some extent, some quite considerable extent, on how robust you think the institutions of your own country are. I certainly don't accept that the position of Britain with a stable political and legal tradition extending back many centuries is exactly the same as that of, for example, a country emerging from 40 years of communist dictatorship at the end of the last century. If I thought uh, that there was a significant risk, if I thought that the culture of the country in which I live presented an appreciable risk of the kind of problem that you are pointing out, I, I would take a different view. But I don't. It seems to me uh, that the likelihood of this happening is too remote for it to be worth the very real costs 
and the very real offence against basic democratic government, which is represented by having a legislative power conferred on a, a body standing outside the constitutional framework of the UK. Isn't though the ECHR, and as I was asking you the question, I was almost formulating your potential answer in my mind, because as you yes. say, as you say, if, if a government were to come to power that wanted to persecute the Jews, it would be unlikely to listen to the ECHR or, or to obey its decisions. Well, see, Russia, have, not the Jews, but uh, Russia has systematically ignored basic human rights for decades. And has it been, has it, it's just simply disregarded the ECHR. But is it not actually still a useful court for us as Brits? Perhaps not in such extreme circumstances then, but in more moderate overreach of the state against the individual. And you, of course, are very keen to protect the rights of the individual where, wherever possible, where, wherever proportionate as you see it. Well, I think that the problem is that the convention should not be concerned uh, with moderate departures uh, from whatever norms you might identify. The convention started after the war as a way of ensuring uh, that we never experienced something like Italian fascism or German Nazism again. It is or ought to be concerned with avoiding extremes. It shouldn't be concerned with matters on which people can perfectly legitimately civilized people can perfectly legitimately disagree. Because when people disagree, and when there's reasonable scope for disagreement, the way of resolving it is a political process. That is what politics is for. So just to be clear, and this isn't a question, this is just to be absolutely clear in my mind as to your stance on this. Even if we were to have such an extreme government, that the ECHR would be unlikely to prove a successful obstacle to it. You would, in those circumstances, in the circumstances in which you worried about such a, a government coming into existence, and you don't in the case of Britain, you would nonetheless hope that we were still part of the ECHR. Well, I'm not sure how that could arise, because I don't think uh, that this is at all likely to happen. I, I don't think we need the ECHR uh, as an obstacle. But if it um, were to happen, it wouldn't work anyway, in your view, is what I'm if saying. If I thought there was a serious risk of its happening, I would take a different view about the value of the ECHR, even though I don't think that the ECHR uh, would work. Uh, the reason for that is that uh, if something went as badly wrong as that, one would hope that voices would be raised. One would hope that my voices would be raised along, uh, along with that of many other people to criticise it. Criticism against a despotism is usually fruitless. But I think that it is good to be able to look back and feel that you were on the right side. You've cleared that up for me. Thank you. Final two questions. And clearly with you, the temptation is to get involved in an exchange of ideas because you have such a lively and engaging mind. But I want to return to getting a sense of you, perhaps more than your ideas, as we finish. And I'm curious to know exactly how many languages you are now able to speak or read or speak and or read and what they are and how on earth you've managed to become such a multilinguist. Well, I read, apart from English, Latin, uh, Greek, ancient Greek, French, uh, Dutch, Italian, German, Spanish, Portuguese and Catalan. The uh, I do not speak more than a very small number of those fluently. I get by in German and Italian, uh, spoken German and Italian, not very eloquently. I'm more or less bilingual in French. Uh, so there's a world of difference between the spoken and the written language. 
because when you are speaking, you are translating into a, an unfamiliar language. When you are reading, you're translating out of it, which is a lot easier. Why do you think it's a lot easier? Well, because you are uh, recognizing the meaning of foreign words and associating them with the equivalent in England is much more straightforward than having to formulate, as you do when speaking, a way of addressing somebody in a foreign language, because the latter requires you to have a much fuller grasp when you're actually composing sentences in that language. You don't need that to the same extent when you are reading. You just need to recognize the words and have a basic grasp of the grammar. And, you know, I have only ever actually formally learnt French, Spanish and German, and I suppose Latin and Greek at school. The others I basically experienced when I was writing my books a need to master them. So my technique was normally to arm myself with a dictionary and a grammar and sit down at a not-too-difficult novel and pile through it. Sooner or later, the penny drops, and you can do it reasonably fluently without a dictionary and grammar. I'm going to have to squeeze sort of two questions into one here, because I want to know, (laughs) apart apart from your law, apart from the law and apart from history, and you're a family man as well, what your passions are. I want you to to, uh, spend some of your time in France. I want to get a sense of what you're like outside of your professional interests but as part of that and here's the cheat how on earth have you managed to cram in writing five volumes of the hundred years war at the same time as operating at a very very high level in the legal world how do you manage to fit it all in and what are you fitting in outside of the work well in addition to my writings i very much enjoy travel and music and as you say i I have a family and they're very important to me and most of them, although they're all my children are all grown up now, live within 10 minutes walk of, of me. So all of that is, I suppose, time consuming, but very rewardingly so. How do I fit it all in? Well, I mean, lots of people have a hinterland of some sort. There are, there are people who repair old bangers, who do Morris dancing or bell ringing at their local church. This is just my equivalent. But this requires serious research. Yeah, okay. Uh, but lots of people spend the whole of their Sundays reading the Sunday newspapers. You can cut that out. But a lot of example. people, a lot of people, if they're sitting in the High Court or if they're an advocate in a major case, would probably be thinking about at least, if not actually sitting down at a desk and working on those huge cases on a Saturday or on a Sunday. So are you, you're seriously telling me, and you must, you must be telling me this by definition, because otherwise you couldn't have done it. But you'd be in the middle of a big case, whether as an advocate or as a judge. And in your downtime, you'd spend some of your downtime simply researching very, very hard on really quite important, difficult, interesting parts of history and then writing about it. You have to have some downtime, otherwise you go mad. And my experience is that judges or advocates who think about absolutely nothing uh, but law uh, tend to do the job a lot less well than those who do have a hinterland. But I mean, my point about Sundays wasn't intended absolutely literally. Of course, you're right to say that if you're in the middle of a witness action, you may have to work through Sundays. But you know, the, the, the life of a barrister is actually fairly adaptable, much more so in one sense than that of a judge. If a case settles, for example, or goes short, you don't have to go and stand at the cab rank looking for your next job. You can push off. Uh, I mean, you may well disappoint your clerk, but with sensitive clerks will understand. Jonathan Sumption, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you for answering my 20 questions. It's a pleasure.